welcome to the Why on Earth Community Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron William Perry. And today we're visiting with two of the directors of the People and Pollinators Action Network, Louise Chawla and Julie Morris. Hello. Hi, Aaron. Thanks for having Hi, us. Aaron. Hi, Aaron. Hey, it's great having you on today. And I'm, I'm really excited that we're going to be talking about uh, what's going on in the world of pollinators, uh, that's bees and all kinds of other wonderful insects and animals. And we're also going to be sharing a variety of calls to action and opportunities for folks uh, to get involved and help out with this really important issue. So it's great having you on. Louise Chawla. <laughs> yeah, Louise Chawla is Professor Emerita in the program in environmental design at the University of Colorado in Boulder. Her work focuses on the benefits of access to nature for children, the development of active care for the natural world, and participatory methods for engaging children and youth in design and planning as a means of civic development and education for sustainability, and to create communities that support the well being of all ages. She serves on the Scientific Advisory Committee of the Children and Nature Network, which works to document the benefits of access to nature in spaces of everyday life and promote city greening. She finds common cause in creating green spaces for people and pollinators and in ensuring that people as well as pollinators are protected from toxic pesticides. Julie Morris is Associate Teaching Professor in the Department of Biological Sciences at the University of Denver. Her work focuses on biology education and outreach, especially environmental education and strategies to improve engagement and learning effectiveness in large introductory and non-majors biology courses. She is passionate about preserving biodiversity and is actively involved in several sustainability initiatives on the University of Denver's campus and in the surrounding Denver community. This includes managing DU's community garden and advising two undergraduate student organizations, the DU Pollinators Association and the DU Botanical Society. So once again, Louise and Julie, great to have you on the show. I'm really looking forward to speaking with you right now. Thanks, Aaron. So, Aaron, I just want to say we're directors in the sense that we're on the leadership team for People yeah. in Pollinators Action Network, but I, I want to just put in a word for our really our wonderful um, staff director, Joyce Kennedy, and our communications person, Sabina McKay. We couldn't be doing what we do without them. Oh, it's so wonderful. I, I, I really appreciate the shout out there. And uh, yeah, thank you. We were speaking a bit about... Um, the work before recording the uh, episode, and I know they're managing a number of great initiatives. So thanks for for that shout out. And maybe we'll just use that as a as a segue to dive right in. And let me ask you, Louise, can you tell us, uh, you know, in a nutshell, what what is PPAN uh, to use the acronym, and, and what are you guys up to? Okay, um, I will. I'll jump in, and then Julie, um, come in with and everything you want to add. Um, so PPAN formed, uh, I think it was around 2015. Um, and it is, as it says, it's for People and Pollinators Action Network, recognizing that safe biodiverse habitat for pollinators is also safe um, and beneficial for people in many, many ways. And we can get into some of those many ways during our talk today. Um, and so we need to make common cause um, and understand that if we're working to protect biodiversity, and I think there's a growing awareness now that pollinators are perform essential ecosystem services, and, and Julie as a biologist can say a lot more about that. Um, in, in fact, 
um, E.O. Wilson, the great entomologist, said that if human beings disappeared from the planet all of a sudden, um, all the other species on Earth would kind of go along with their lives and actually a lot of them would rebound and start doing better. But if insects disappeared from the planet, all life on Earth would come crashing down in about three months. Um, and uh, I think, Julie, you can elaborate on that and why he made that prediction, but it, it's a dramatic way of indicating just how much we do depend on um, uh, healthy habitat for pollinators uh, too. And um, so with that goal, um, PPAN has a number of initiatives. Um, I'll say a bit about um, a couple and then maybe pass them on to you, Julie, to talk about as well. Um, so PPAN works at, um, it's a statewide organization. So uh, one of its main areas of work is with state agencies. For example, um, uh, Joyce and other representatives of our group, Joyce Kennedy, went to the Department of Natural Resources and pointed out to them that pollinators are wildlife. I mean, wild native bees and other wild native um, creatures, um, bees, bats, um, butterflies um, are pollinators and um, they are wildlife and therefore they need to be protected by the Department for Natural Resources for Colorado. And, and that was like an, oh, I never thought about that before response that we got from the agency, but they jumped on board. And so we are working with them and helping them develop um, new land management processes um, to create, uh, protect and increase healthy pollinator habitat all over the state. Um, we also work at a city level um, with municipalities and um, um, we've created models for doing pollinator proclamations and resolutions and so far seven cities in um, uh, Colorado have done that including Denver, Boulder, Boulder County, Lafayette, Longmont, Virtude, Cherry Hills Village um, and it involves um, making a commitment that they're going to take a series of steps to make their cities more welcoming, friendly, habitable places for pollinators, but at the same time, that's good for people. For example, if they cha change city, all city parks and city lands to organic turf, um, that's better for, safer for people, safer for children, safer for pets. Um, and uh, move toward pollinator-friendly plantings, which tends to be water conserving as well. And I, I think as we talk today, uh, we can talk about the kind of multiple ecosystem um, services and benefits that uh, are achieved by actually the focus on creating safe places for pollinators. And I know Julie is an expert on, on that, on ecosystem services and can talk about that with us. Um, we have pollinator safe communities, encouraging private landowners, both farmers and people just with their private yards to plant for pollinators and create biodiversity. Um, we do webinars with um, a butterfly pavilion and uh, Denver Botanic Gardens. We organize a, an annual Colorado Pollinator Summit where people get together from all over the state to share both um, action initiatives and research going on about pollinators in the state. Um, we just recently, a couple years ago, helped uh, form an environmental health coalition with many other groups of the state uh, lobby on the state legislature and um, when we talk about the pollinator license plate petition we can say more about that um, and uh, do plant and seed swaps um, Julie do you want to say something about the pollinator highways initiative as well yeah sure I'm um, 
I'm s- s- relatively new to the uh, the PPAN board. I've just come on uh, in the last year, um, but was sort of a- aware of the activity of the group uh, before that. And, um, you know, my main interests um, in becoming part of the group was um, sort of education and outreach uh, initiatives. Um, so ho- hopefully reaching more people than just the, the students in our classes, um, sort of public outreach is, I think, pretty important. Um, and so any ways to raise awareness and um, uh, uh um, Luis already mentioned the the Colorado Pollinator Summit, which is um, um, just a really great way to uh, lots of people coming together from land management to business people to um, uh, you know city uh, organizers to concerned citizens, um, all looking at uh, ways that we might um, interact. And that's sort of one way that I became aware of what was going on. Um, and the other was, uh, as Luis mentioned, the Pollinator Highway Project. So. Um, PPAN um, uh, works with the Colorado Department of Transportation. And um, a couple of years ago, I think 2017, <laughs> um, uh, they, we designated the, um, the first sort of uh, official Colorado pollinator highway um, on I-76. Um, from Julesburg to Denver, I believe. And um, the, the goal is to uh, change the way they manage the sides of the highway and uh, increase pollinator habitat. Um, so decrease uh, mowing, um, add uh, specific plantings that can provide forage and um, food and and uh, nesting sites for pollinators, but but also to draw attention um, and raise awareness. I think um, one of the most important things is uh, often people aren't aware of the problem and, and really how easy it is to make some impactful changes. And so I think that's um, one really great thing about PPAN. Uh, and the other is to start thinking about um, how we can change policies, both at the state level and local levels. As, as we raise awareness and people uh, start to care, thinking about uh, how we can actually start to make changes. And, uh, you know, many of these changes can actually save the state money because it means holding off and not doing the mowing at the wrong time when you're going to be, you know, cutting down plants that are essential for um, for pollinator uh, survival, and uh, so doing fewer mowings. So with the highways, for example, right along the highways, that's still going to be kept short. But then there's a buffer zone beyond that, and that's like a perfect place to plant these pollinator strips, and which will also hold water. Um, serve like rain gardens, so serve multiple effects. The other great thing about the uh, the highway project is um, highways are sort of natural corridors, and one really important thing about uh, ecosystems and sort of uh, managing and improving ecosystem is connectivity, uh, and and being able to use these highways to uh, connect. Uh, areas of of habitat is really important for the ecosystems yeah thanks for uh for for pointing that out and i i know that the corridors have been uh thought about quite a bit with uh, other uh conservation and uh ecosystem stewardship efforts you know with with larger animals and it's it's really neat to think about this uh, in terms of the insects themselves and i i want to you know, I, and also I'm so excited and I will admit a bit proud that here in Colorado, we've got some really cool initiatives underway that folks in other regions might, you know, be able to uh, adapt and, and adopt and um, for, for their uh, needs. And, you know, with, with our community, it's, it's wonderful. The Why on Earth community, we're working with folks uh, throughout the whole country and even internationally 
And so, you know, my, my hope and prayer today is that uh, this discussion might even uh, plant some seeds, as it were, in other communities outside of our wonderful rectangular border here in Colorado. And so backing up a little, you know, for folks who maybe are newer to the conversation, I'd like to dig in a bit both on the ecosystem services uh, side of the coin and on on the uh, the big old like you know what's the problem side of the coin and i i know when we had the opportunity to interview scott black uh, executive director of uh, xerces uh, several months back uh the, the, he was able to share some stories about uh, you know, insect die-off rates uh, throughout the United States, particularly in the Midwest and, and really throughout the world. So I, I wanted to make sure we really underscore uh, the, the severity and scope and scale of, of the challenge and problem that you guys are addressing through PPAN. So with that two-part question, um, Julia, would I, should I should I kick that to you first? Yeah, I can uh, right. jump jump in on there. So, um, one thing that is I think attractive about pollinators is um, you know they can they tend to be insects that uh, people have an easier time relating with often in many cases uh, and see the the benefit of and can sort of be um, spokes <laughs> spokes insects for the rest of the uh, important organisms. Um, and so like you're, you're thinking of like butterflies and bees and so right yes. Okay. Okay. <laughs> uh, you know these beautiful versus spiders. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Spiders and wasps, the predators out there, equally <laughs> equally important. Um, however, you know, in this case, it's it's a good it's a gateway into the conversation about insect declines, which are really just part of a much broader declines in biodiversity in general. Uh, so there's increasing awareness of of the catastrophic, I would say, biodiversity loss happening around the world right now. And the things that are driving that general biodiversity loss are really the same things that are behind um, specific in insect declines and more specifically pollinator declines. So it's all connected as part of the bigger picture. Um, and really what um, those things are um, is, is probably number one, habitat loss. Uh, you know, n loss of resources and home and space uh, to survive. And that's definitely the case uh, with our pollinators. And I can go into some more detail about that. Um, another would be pollution um, in general. And uh, specifically in the case when you're talking about insects and pollinators, these tend to be pesticides, right? And other agrochemical types of things. And pesticides include insecticides, uh, but also things like herbicides and fungicides. Um, you know, they, they have these sort of more focused names, but it's important to realize that these chemicals can have impacts on other organisms besides the target organism that they're aimed at. Um, and a lot of research is, is being um, brought to light these days about uh, the impacts of fungicides and herbicides on insects as well. Um, uh, Non-native species are often an issue. Uh, so invasive species that either compete with native species. And um, in truth, European honeybees are not native to North America. And um, while they are, are very important to our agricultural systems, there's also some evidence that they do compete um, with our, our native pollinator species, especially in, in cases where there are limited resources. Um, and uh, things that, that make the news like climate change can also be an issue. Uh, and often um, climate change causes, often one of the big problems is what we call um, phenology mismatch. So phenology is the timing of events, biological events. So if you think about a plant, when did the leaves come out? When did they flower? When does it fruit? The timing of those events. It can also be sort of animal events. Um, you know, how do they overwinter? 
um, what are the larval stages, uh, when do they hatch. Uh, and sometimes um, organisms are, are sort of uh, in sync <laughs> uh, in ideal conditions. So the, the pollinators come out when there is food um, for them. And um, sometimes under climate change conditions, the organisms don't change at the same rate. And so now maybe the pollinators come out when the flowers aren't there yet, or the flowers come out and the pollinators aren't there yet, which is then problematic for both groups of organisms. Um, and then, you know, also sort of introduced diseases. Uh, this is a long list at this point, but um, it, you humans and uh, the organisms that we move around can carry uh, diseases, viruses, bacteria, um, fungi, uh, these kinds of things um, can, can move around and cause problems with the organisms. So it's really a, a combination of these things that are, are causing the problem. And then um, maybe moving to why we should care <laughs> uh, is thinking about what really, what these organisms are doing in nature. And um, pollinators, we, th we think about them, um, one reason that I like to talk about them in my classes is that I think they're an amazing example of what we've mentioned a couple of times, this ecosystem services. Uh, and maybe just to take a step back and define what that actually is. So ecosystem services are basically the, um, the benefits that humans get from functioning ecosystems. And these can be uh, sort of classified into different categories. So um, uh, things like um, sort of really material benefits that we call provisioning services. So this is really food and clean water and timber, uh, natural oils, medicines that we get from nature. Um, and then there's another class of benefits called regulating services. And these are things that are provided sort of by ecosystem processes and how they regulate sort of natural phenomenon, uh, like preventing erosion and purifying our air and water and flood prevention, sort of these categories of things, climate regulation, carbon fixation, um, sort of that class of things. And um, then there are cultural services, and these are really kind of non-material, intangible kinds of things like, um, uh, cultural and intellectual and social benefits that um, that I think Luis can even speak more to the, the research in those areas. So I know we'll come back to them. Um, but anyway, all of these ecosystem services only come to us from healthy functioning ecosystems. And, and so when we have disturbances in, in biodiversity, so biodiversity loss leads to imbalances in the system and you lose stability and you also lose resilience. Um, and so if, if you think about um, one metaphor that I really like is thinking about a Jenga game, <laughs> uh, all those little blocks that you stack up, right? And um, you know, the, the structure is, is created by the interaction of all of those pieces in the stack. And as you start removing those pieces, it, uh, the entire system becomes unstable and you know, could eventually collapse basically. And so the more biodiversity you have, the more resilience uh, to change um, you know, and the more stability you have, the more likely that these ecosystem services will be provided for us. And uh, pollination is an important one. Yes. And it, I want to, yeah, yes. if I could just add, um, and um, pollination is a critical service in itself, but then there is that cascading effect because when we look around at all the vegetation we love in our world and certainly the native plants, um, if they're flowering plants, they probably are dependent, some are windblown, depend on windblown pollination, but but most of them depend on the right insects showing up at the right time, as Julie was saying, um, to pollinate them. And this, 
um, in the spring. And um, if you take that away and then you start to, as Julie was saying, let's, well, let's take this plant out of the ecosystem and this one isn't going to survive anymore. And then we got to take out all these others. I, I've heard, Julie, like about 70% of the plants, we look around and see the flower, the wildflowers and the shrubbery and trees here in the, our open space in Colorado um, depend on pollination. Um, and so if you take them all out because we don't have the pollinators anymore, um, we have those cascading effects, then they're not there to cool the temperature and slow the rainwater runoff and um, perform all those other functions that yeah. plants play in our lives. It's, it's a and really good cultural service of beauty. Yes, that's a really good point, Louise. Often people think about food. When you talk about pollination, it's easy to, pe to, to relate the fact that um, most of our food, I think I've seen estimates that one out of every three bites of food uh, requires pollination. And, um, and so that's often a little bit easier for people to relate to, but also most of our ecosystems are also flowering plants requiring pollination. That doesn't often get as much attention. Uh, and often because there's sort of multiple steps between uh, the act of pollination and the specific benefit that we're receiving. Uh, and so I think it's important to understand those connections and those steps. Yeah, that's, thank you for, for helping to paint that picture and uh, connect those dots. And one, one of the things I'm very excited about to hear uh, early in uh, 2021 is that this is the beginning of the decade on uh, ecosystem restoration uh, among our entire global community uh, as decided through the United Nations uh, body. And, you know, it's to me, it's such an interesting set of issues to think about because on the one hand, we're talking about very complex systems. And when it comes to ecosystems and particularly understanding the interactions between, say, the, the kingdom of fungi and the insects, uh, our understanding has absolutely blossomed in the last decade or two only. And really prior to that, we, we had a very rudimentary, if entirely uh, lacking understanding. And, and it seems we're gonna learn a whole lot more uh, in the coming years. So there, there's on the one hand, this incredibly complex set of systems to think about in terms of getting better at regenerating and being good stewards of these environments upon which of course we all depend. On the other hand, there, there's this growing sense of, I think, urgency and desire in the general public to do whatever can be done to help with these issues, uh, recognizing, it seems, um, by more and more folks that it doesn't necessarily mean we all have to be PhDs and, and know all of the complexities of particular <laughs> ecosystem functions, but that it's still really important. And moreover, that it's super important. We're all doing what can be done. So I guess that's a bit of a, a comment leading toward this question, which is uh, what can we do? And um, how are you guys mobilizing in, at the beginning of this new year, heading into this new decade uh, to help activate more action among the general public? I can start out a little bit, uh, Louise, and um, you know I think one of the the most exciting things about this is there are a lot of very simple things that people can do, really starting with their own yards. Uh, if we think about um, how much uh, space really our neighborhoods take up and how much of that is covered, often agriculture maybe gets uh, the you know, the, the brunt of concern. Um, and so people think, well, how am I supposed to change how industrial agriculture is done? But if you realize that really our yards are, are the same sort of um, what we call monoculture, just all one kind of plant. And so, you know, in the agriculture fields, it's our 
corn or soybeans or um, uh, whatever the main crop. And in our yards, it's our lawns, this green grass that uh, has no, no benefit um, really to, uh, to um, maintaining biodiversity. And so by making some simple changes and really um, planting, increasing habitat, um, which, which is really just planting flowers <laughs> um, and, and thinking about how you do it uh, in a way, um, you know, sort of in a way that is specifically useful to uh, the pollinators. But the nice thing about that is it's also beautiful. It uh, beautifies the space. It often takes less water and less management um, on a day-to-day -day basis than our lawns do. And so there's sort of multiple benefits. And, and when you increase habitat for pollinators, it also uh, in benefits other beneficial insects, which then increases the numbers of birds. And you have, again, this sort of cascading uh, positive effects. And Louise can talk more about sort of the, you know, the mental <laughs> impact of looking at a beautiful garden full of uh, flowers in a, you know, so the human added benefits to that as well. So really making some small changes to the way you manage your yard, increasing habitat, um, not using uh, chemicals, right? Sort of adjusting what we think uh, a beautiful yard is <laughs> um, to being one that's biodiverse uh, um, can make a huge difference. And then uh, supporting groups like PPAN and, and Xerces who are um, trying to spread the word. And so uh, we have programs like our, um, our Pollinators Safe um, uh, Neighborhoods and, uh, you know, just um, uh, our pollinator, taking the pollinator pledge which basically just says you're going to increase habitat in your yard and not use chemicals. Uh, then neighbors start asking what you're doing out there and you can uh, really get to uh, spread the word uh, that way. So um, those are ones that I would think of right off the bat. That's great. Thank you, Julie. And, and Louise, is there anything you would add to that? Um, yeah, well, yeah, so for one thing, um, some pollinators are kind of generalists and will go for um, different varieties of um, flowering plants, but in general, it means um, native plants, going with native plants. Um, and as Julie mentioned, that's a water saving move because native plants evolved here in the semi-arid west and unfortunately we're becoming more arid and they're more likely to be the tough survivors here if we give them a chance. And, um, and um, it, I want to say how encouraging it is to take these steps, you know, digging out a, um, a part of the lawn or taking, changing, um, plants from distant parts of the world that did not co-evolve with the um, wild um, bees and other native pollinator, pollinators that we have here and re replacing that space with um, native plantings. And, and certainly you can throw in some really bright hybrids and, uh, and think up there too. I think uh, many, uh, it's easy to get information on, on which ones pollinators will be attracted to. Um, but we see the results right away. Um, and as Julie said, the, these are flowering plants, they're beautiful, um, but it's really exciting when you plant it and they come. Um, for example, we did a, I'm in an HOA, but we got permission to put a pollinator garden in the um, sunny west facing side of our um, townhouse. And it, it, this is, it's still raw, just planted. <laughs> Um, I know it's going to get more and more lush and abundant, but, you know, it's just these individual plants we had put in and just brought in from the nursery and stuck them in the ground. And there are the bumblebees and there are the bees and there are um, the hummingbirds. And, 
and it's just so exciting to see those immediate results. Um, and as um, Dave Goulson, who's an internationally recognized um, entomologist and an expert on insects and uh, especially bumblebees and um, native bees, who's been out here a couple of times um, partnering with us with um, PPAN and also was a keynote speaker for our Colorado Pollinator Summit um, in 2020. As he points out, insects have a fast reproduction rate so you can make a real difference in their survival quite quickly. Um, and then it's also a matter of connectivity as Julie was saying, if you, some, I, I understand Julie and you would know more about this, but I, am, I understand that some native bees don't travel very far. They have relatively small radius for foraging. Um, but so if you plant, have a garden and then your neighbor has a garden and a couple doors down the street, they have a garden. We're creating those connect that connectivity that Julie was talking about that was so important. Um, in fact, as I was putting in my garden, I have a couple neighbors further down our row who've already done that. And um, so one of them said, we're planting a pollinator buffet, <laughs> which is really what they need. So, um, you know, they got a variety, all that variety of different kinds of plants and all within, you know, within a short distance from each other. Um, we had at CU with our bee club, um, one of their activities was designing um, pollinator gardens for parking lots. You know, let's just take away a couple. All it needs is um, these little strips where you have some trees. Let's let's put pollen, you know, pollinator-friendly plantings in there and manage it for that. Or you, uh, make a deal to take out a couple parking spots, and you've got a pollinator garden in there. Um, and it is. It's more beautiful as well for people. Thank you. That's uh, really got me excited thinking about some layered opportunities in our communities really all around the world. And I um, have just made notes. I want to ask about four important topics, kids, dandelions, HOAs, and, and parking lots um, in a moment. But first, just want to take uh, a pause uh, to remind our audience that this is the Why on Earth Community Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron William Perry. And today we're visiting with both Louise Chawla and Julie Morris, who are on the board of directors of People and Pollinators Action Network. And uh, of course, uh, wanna mention, you can connect uh, with PPAN through their website. It's peopleandpollinators.org. On Facebook, it's People and Pollinators, all spelled out, same thing on Instagram. And when you go to the website, you can uh, find the page to sign the pollinator pledge. And if you're here in Colorado, you can also sign the petition to create a new Colorado pollinator license plate, which is great. I actually signed the petition earlier today preparing for our discussion. Um, I'd like to give a special shout out and thanks to the sponsors and partners who make this podcast series possible. And that includes the uh, Lidge Family Foundation, Earth Coast Productions, Alpine Botanicals, Purium, Earth Hero, Liquid Trainer, Vera Herbals, Growing Spaces, Soil Works, 1% for the Planet, Earth Water Press, Dr. Bronner's, and Waylay Waters. Of course, a very special thanks to those folks who have joined our stewardship circle, making generous donations to the support the work that we're doing and to everybody in our monthly contributor program and if you haven't yet joined uh, you can go to whyonearth.org click the donate button and set up a monthly recurring uh, donation of any amount uh, that works well for you to support all of this work if you choose to give at the $33 or greater level, you'll get a monthly delivery of our biodynamically grown CBD hemp infused aromatherapy soaking salts as a way not only to support regenerative uh, farms, but really uh, to enhance your own personal health and wellness practices, complements of Waylay Waters. And uh, I wanna also give a quick shout out that 
we have uh, created a special coupon code PPAN, P-P-A-N, which you can use at whyonearth.org to purchase uh, our Celebrating Honeybees Children's book, which is printed uh, and also comes as an ebook. And we're gonna be putting up uh, prints of special artwork as part of our whole new ambassador platform in 2021. And uh, you can also get a 10% discount on any of those prints like the one of the honeycomb you see behind me or any of our other wonderful products. And when you use the PPAN code, we will also donate 10% of those proceeds to PPAN to support their efforts this year, 2021. So uh, with that, that's a, a lot of different ways, folks, that you can uh, engage and get involved. Really, it's, it's so important that we're all doing what we can in our communities. And uh, especially when it comes to the impacts on children. And, you know, one of the things that has sort of astounded me uh, these past several years, uh, learning more and more about important issues with pollinators, as well as with incredible uh, toxification of our environments. And I, it's not a, a stretch or nor hyperbolic to say that as a global society, we've effectively been waging chemical warfare on the planet for something like a hundred years now. Sometimes we call it agriculture and sometimes we call it beautification of the neighborhood. And you know, one of the great challenges we're facing is that indeed many uh, homeowners associations, HOAs are actually requiring still some of these toxic chemicals to be used in, in yards. And the, the link I think that is so important we all understand is that many of these toxic chemicals are particularly harmful to children and of course to pets and uh, can, can damage uh, the kids' growth and development in their early years. And of course, it's kids often that are out romping around in the yards, getting even more exposed to many of these chemicals than, than us grownups might on our own. So I just, I want to uh, get right into that important point. You know, what do people need to know, do you think, about this issue of, of toxicity and even even in a progressive place like Colorado, I still see people spraying poisons without any personal protective equipment of their own uh, around their yards, knowing there are children right next door and pets all over and, and so forth. So what, what do we do about this? What do people need to know about this? People need to know that um, There's just a huge amount. We uh, whole chemical industry advertising has um, lobbying has uh, definitely tried to keep from our knowledge in terms of the serious rate of toxicity of um, these. For example, I think many people think, well, if it's in the marketplace, if it's on the shelf, it must be safe. Um, and that's the, the argument of industry that it's safe is used used as directed. Of course, how many people before they start spraying print on the label? Um, and um, I think most pe most people don't. And um, but for for example. Um, uh, Dave Goulston, in his keynote speech at the Colorado Pollinator Summit um, last fall, um, noted that typically so with agricultural spraying, five, about 5% 5 actually gets on the target plant and penetrates the target plant. Mm -hmm. The rest of it goes into the land and water. And if it goes into the land, it's eventually going to go into the water when there's rain or when there's the irrigation that comes on. Same thing in our HOAs. Um, if we're herbiciding our lawns so that heavens, for heaven's sake, don't let a dandelion ever appear, um, that is washing away into um, the you know, runoff and into our creeks. Um, and we know we have herbicides, for example, in Boulder, we know we have um, herbicides and um, chemicals and some beyond the level considered safe um, by the EPA. 
that um, must be coming from people's private yards because the city doesn't use them. Years ago, the city of Boulder stopped all toxic pesticides on city lands and parks. Um, the school district doesn't use them. Um, they decide, you know, protecting the health and safety of children and staff is more important. Um, and um, the university stopped using them many years ago for the same reasons. It's the moment you begin to sit down and read about the effects that these um, pesticides have, it's what I call an oh my God subject. Um, when I began, my work includes um, creating places, designing places to connect children with the natural world. Um, and ever since I was a, a doctoral student, um, I was aware of um, that there are other people who think about the chemical environment of children and adults, um, that invisible environment we don't see, but it's still very much present for us. Um, and I began to read a bit about the effect of herbicides and insecticides on green spaces and what those risks are, which as you say, Erin, it could be the lawns that children young run on, it's the athletic playing fields, um, it's the city parks in, in cities that are still using these toxic chemicals freely. Um, and Oh, Louise, I, I think we've got a bit of a... So every age, but children are... There's a bit of a, a, a unstable connection. Yeah, also. if Louise is... I, I can build on that, um, okay. what Louise was talking about. And also, like, another really important point about these chemicals is that they tend to persist in nature. And so, you know, often what's considered safe, you know, what they've done with uh, safety, you know, is at, at concentrations, specifically um, diluted conversation um, concentrations. But the problem with these chemicals is they persist in nature. So every time you keep putting them out there, uh, the concentration increases and increases. And so uh, you start to see toxicities and really the testing that's been done to call these safe is really sort of a short-term thing. It's not looking at the long-term uh, buildup of these things or, or their presence in nature or how they're impacting other things. Um, we, we've been talking a lot about insects here, but also thinking about how these chemicals are affecting the biodiversity in our soils. Um, you know, we're, we're just beginning to understand how much life <laughs> is in our soil and how important that life is to the productivity of our agricultural systems and also our ecosystems. And when you, when you spray these things on the plant, you know, that there are also a lot of non-target organisms in the soil that reduce the fertility and resilience of the soil. So, um, you know, connected uh, problems. And there's sort of increasing understanding about the potential impacts to human health. It's not fully understood, um, but, you know, there's uh, increasing understanding of this enough so that you're, you're starting to see um, movements to uh, reduce the amount of it. And I think it's, it's really important to raise awareness because I think most of the problem comes from not understanding the multiple side effects. I think often people are focused on the one thing, like I need the dandelions gone from my yard or what about those um, uh, Japanese beetles that are eating everything <laughs> uh, without thinking about the interconnections of, of everything. And, and I think when you, when you educate people about these things, they're much, um, much more likely to change behaviors. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, um, echoing uh, Brigitte Mars, the world-renowned herbalist who's written some 14 books and is on our global advisory board during a, an episode that we did with her a while back, she was encouraging folks to not spray the dandelions in particular. And, 
you know, this is this is about a, a cultural bias, I guess, um, that that so many of us still think that having dandelions in in the yard is is somehow indicative of not being a good uh, steward of of the landscape. But it turns out dandelions are among one of the most important early flowering plants, providing food and forage to all manner of pollinators uh, early in the season. And mm -hmm. so this is in, in a way similar to the, the uh, butterflies and hummingbirds and bees that can be sort of the poster uh, creatures for these, this movement. The dandelion also, I think, uh, can be one that uh, we focus on as well. Yeah, it's, it's a good point. I will say though, um, at our HOA, we've gone organic and we have actually a beautiful lawn. What I've noticed for when uh, University of Colorado in Boulder went organic, um, it takes a couple years for what just what Julie was saying for the soil. Oh, shoot, I think Louise, we've got, we've got another disruption in the cover. The connection. And, uh, not so strong right now, Louise. I'm so sorry. Um, <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry. This is, uh, I, I, I want to hear what you're saying, but it's just not coming through. It's getting all chopped up. Oh. I, I think um, what she was starting to say is, is that, um, you know, often when you start to make these changes, it takes uh, a couple of years for the, the soil to recover. Um, and, and when, as the, um, as the health of the system comes back with the absence of these chemicals, then you, you see, uh, you know, your plants out competing the weeds, a healthy, a healthy system is actually more balanced and more resistant uh, to pests. Um, sort of leading into that idea. Yeah. Yeah. So Aaron, um, just technologically, um, if I switch to my PC, um, I'm on well, my laptop now. We're, Louise, we're toward the end of the discussion. Fortunately, we've been okay. able to, um, I think, get so much great information and inspiration from you both. So uh, we'll just have to kind of roll with it here and uh, continue on to kind of wrap up in the next few minutes. And uh, yeah, this, this is part of the uh, uh, challenge, I guess, of the connectivity that uh, we're experiencing and working with Zoom. From time to time, we get a bit of this uh, turbulence, but I, I'm happy that most all of our conversation has come through really well. So uh, that, that's positive. And, and I'm just gonna remind folks to be sure to go to peopleandpollinators.org uh, to get a lot of additional information and to engage uh, with the organization, take the pollinator pledge. And, you know, certainly uh, we can all be doing uh, more in our own yards and neighborhoods. And, you know, the thing I'm, I'm really excited to think about uh, as an opportunity for the Why on Earth community to help at the national scale and perhaps even beyond that has to do with public spaces like parking lots and also with homeowners associations. Um, even, even in a town like Boulder, I will cross parking lots and notice that there's stones with nary a plant growing amidst them and they have the colored stains of various herbicides and other toxic chemicals uh, on, on those stones. And it's, it's really a, a shame that in these parking lots scattered all around the country, not only are we not using them to create pollinator habitat, in many cases, we're dousing them with uh, untold volumes of toxic chemicals. And so I think, you know, as communities become more aware and, and mobilize more around these kinds of on the ground issues, those parking lots are one of the target areas we can probably do a lot more. And similarly, with homeowners associations, uh, th this is an opportunity where a few folks in leadership in a particular community can help transform what that HOA is all about in, in becoming more a force for health and wellness and ecosystem restoration and less a force for spraying cancer causing uh, toxins basically. So I'm really encouraged to hear Louise about the pollinator garden that you guys did with your HOA and look forward to following up on that and, and seeing what we can do in the coming months 
uh, to help support more of these kinds of, of efforts. And so I just, um, I'm so happy we've had this opportunity to visit today. And I wanna be sure to uh, give you uh, an opportunity to say whatever else you might have to say, Julie. And um, Louise, I hope uh, we can get a, a good connection for you to make some concluding remarks as well. But if not, we've already got a lot from you, which is wonderful. So with that, Julie, let me ask if uh, you have any you know, final comments or remarks you'd like to share with our audience. I, I think the most important take home um, messages is that there are a lot that individuals can do uh, and that if if you want to take it to the next level, um, you know, you can become an advocate, you can help raise awareness, you can take these issues to your HOA, to your community, um, you can join with uh, groups like PPAN to even, um, you know, uh, lobby at, at uh, state and national levels. Um, there's lots of ways to, to be involved. Uh, and really the most important thing you can do is, is change your individual behaviors and um, and spread the word uh, to people around you. Sometimes that has the greatest impact, uh, the conversation with a neighbor. So um, uh, just being aware of the problem is a good start and uh, any tiny steps that you make uh, help um, amplify the work that is being done uh, elsewhere. You know, if you think about the work do, that you're doing in the yard being an island that helps us increase connectivity and, and amplify uh, restoration um, efforts in our natural, some of our natural areas, it's just as important in your yard. I want to add just two things in closing, Erin. Um, for one, I want to go back to the question you asked me about the special vulner vulnerability of children and emphasize again the importance of avoiding the risks of avoiding these pesticides that are harmful to people, pets, and ecosystems. But why children are especially vulnerable? Um, children's bodies are in the process of forming. Um, and if they are their mother was, is exposed to pesticides when they are, um, the child is developing in the womb. Um, many pesticides are endocrine disruptors, and that means that they, they can mimic the messages of our own hormones. And they do that at very, very low doses because the doses of our own hormone messages are, are very slow. So we tend to think that the more of a toxic chemical, the worse. But actually, these chronic low levels can be exceedingly dangerous. Um, and so pesticides are associated with childhood cancers, just as adults develop cancers associated with pesticides too. Um, but also, again, if their mother's exposed when she's carrying the child, it's associated with low birth weights or preterm births or congenital um, defects. Um, and as with adults, um, asthma, lung diseases, but also for children, there's a really special risk of neurological disorder because their, their whole brain system and nervous system throughout their body is forming so rapidly. And if they're exposed to pesticides in those early years, um, it, there's a lot of evidence that pesticides can, can contribute to autism and um, to uh, lower IQ, to attention deficit and hyperactivity disorder, to a range of neurological disorders. So, so that's the answer to that question. Um, but on the positive side, I just want to say again, um, we can all do something at every scale. And um, the entomologist Doug Tallamy calls this building living landscapes. So if we change our practices from those habits of using toxic chemicals and just and eradicating native plants instead of fostering them around our, our homes and in our gardens, um, 
then every piece matters and we can do it everywhere. We can do it in our homes. We can green school grounds and plant pollinator uh, gardens there and do that teachers and children together. We can do it at our churches and our university campuses and our cities and parks and our state labs. And as you were saying, Erin, uh, you know, when, when um, people do this, they're setting an example that other places can pick up and um, can, um, can reproduce all across the country. Um, and so let's just all be part of that effort of building living landscapes. With that, I want to I want to thank you both for taking the time to to visit with me today and to have this really important conversation uh, with our why on our uh, why on earth community audience and uh, look forward to uh, collaborating more in the coming months as well. So thank you both. Thanks, Erin. We really appreciate all the work you're doing to raise awareness and spread the word, uh, you know, in, in all areas of sustainability and, um, and allowing us to bring up the plight of the pollinators. The Why on Earth Community Stewardship and Sustainability podcast series is hosted by Erin William Perry, author, thought leader, and executive consultant. The podcast and video recordings are made possible by the generous support of people like you. To sign up as a daily, weekly, or monthly supporter, please visit whyonearth.org support. Support packages start at just $1 per month. The podcast series is also sponsored by several corporate and organization sponsors. You can get discounts on their products and services using the code whyonearth, all one word with a Y. These sponsors are listed on the whyonearth.org backslash support page. If you found this particular podcast episode especially insightful, informative, or inspiring, please pass it on and share it with a friend whom you think will also enjoy it. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for your support. And thank you for being a part of the Why on Earth community.